All right, Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Ruth chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week, uh, jumping into this uh, book. As we get into this um, and, and, uh, and keep rolling, I told you last week how excited I am to be in this book and this chapter for me. Uh, I just love how it all plays out. I love the way that the, the narrator tells the story. Uh, and honestly, I would like to just read through chapter 2 and just be like, and there it is, because there's so much that's, so, there's so much that's there. It's such a well-told story. I, I wish that we could do it that way, but I think there's some things that we'll need to point out. So that's the way this morning is going to go. I'm going to read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, and talk about it, just like we did, uh, just like we did last week. You know, there's some questions that are uh, evergreen, questions that never go away, things that seem to kind of uh, uh, go, that, that, that exist, that there doesn't really seem to be an answer to uh, in life. And, and we know these questions like, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which one of those uh, happened first? Why did the chicken cross the road? Why is vanilla ice cream white whenever vanilla actually is brown? Why do we, why do we end up with white ice cream uh, there? Uh, things like, why do we park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? Things that just don't make sense to us. Why do we call it a building when it's already built? You know, it's those type of things that there's no answer to that don't make any sense for us. Why do we do those kind of things or, and, 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 and why do we end up talking the way that we do? Questions that have no answer. But if you ask those questions long enough, eventually you'll start asking bigger questions and questions that actually have uh, a little bit more uh, purpose behind them. We start asking questions like, is there a God? Why am I here uh, what's the purpose in life? Basic questions like that that are fundamental to our existence and, and how we live and how we act every day. Then you start asking questions like, where did evil come from? And then you let that, you like cramp your brain for a little while and you try to sort through some of that. And eventually you'll, you'll get to a question that everyone kind of works through just a little bit. Once you settle on the idea that God is real, and, and you settle on the idea that of, of who God is, you start asking questions about God's sovereignty. And the question is, if God is sovereign over all things, then are we just puppets playing out His script? Are we just robots who really have no control? There's just an illusion that we are able to do what we want. Do humans have any kind of responsibility for the way that we live? After all, if God is sovereign over it all, then aren't we just doing what He would have us do? So are we responsible for our actions? Or maybe a simpler way to ask the question is, what's the line between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? It's a question that theologians have debated for centuries, for millennia. They have debated how this works, and it's the big question, uh, and it's a com complex question, but honestly, the answer to that question may be more simple than you think. The book of Ruth serves as an answer to that question, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. It serves as an answer to that question, but it never addresses it directly like a theologian would in some seminary class. It, it, it answers the question in story form, exactly the same way that it gets answered in your own life. It answers that question through the, the, the lives of these people in this story, and it says, this is how it works, and this is what it is. 
looks like. And what we're going to see, and maybe even especially here in chapter 2, what we're going to see is the, the best example of how that plays out. How God is in control, and yet humans are uh, called to participate in that in some way. So Ruth 2 is where we're at. But for those that missed the first episode in this uh, made-for-Netflix romance drama that we have here, for those that missed that last week in chapter 1, honestly, it was a pretty dark start to our series. Family moves away from their God and from their people in the midst of of famine. The family grows. uh, It adds two daughters-in-law, and things seem to be going well for the the patriarch in the the family has has moved. He's found food where there was a famine. The, The family's beginning to grow, and all is well until the patriarch Elimelech dies. Next, his two sons died as well, which left us with uh, just the ladies, Naomi, the mom, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, all alone in Moab, the home of the daughters, but not the home of Naomi. And what we saw is that this is a very dark, very dangerous place for these women to be in. Naomi decides that she needs to go back to her people. She needs to go back to her people and hope that somebody shows her some mercy. Somebody cares for her. She also decides that Oripah and Ruth should not come back with her. They should head back to Moab to find new husbands, to start a new life, to find new hope, to find uh, happiness and joy where uh, it seems to have completely left them. Naomi speaks of her bitterness in life, and then after much weeping and sadness, Orpah does exactly that. She goes back to her home in Moab to start a new life. But Ruth refuses. And where we left off last week was the, uh, the gossip of the town as, uh, as Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law Ruth show up back into town. They come back in the town is gossiping, and then just as the chapter closes, we get one last shot, one just glimmer, lasted, lasts just for a second, just for a, a, a little snapshot that maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of hope because the harvest season is about to begin. And so the famine is over. Naomi is back with her people. Yes, with Ruth. Yes, uh, with much loss, much pain, much trauma, but she's back with her people The famine is over, the food is being harvested, and it kind of leaves us with a little bit of a cliffhanger at that moment, moment. the first glimmer of hope in the book. And that's where we pick up this week. And so we're going to run through this chapter a little bit like we did last week. So let's start in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the narrator introduces the new character. He shows up. He wasn't in episode one, but here he is in episode two. We start with a tight shot on Boaz pulling up to the the farm. So the narrator introduces us to this main character, uh, and he is is my man Boaz. I love Boaz. He is the best. I'm convinced that Jane Austen used Boaz as like the the, the person that she modeled every one of her uh, characters at. after. After all, he's, 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 I assume he's good-looking. He's almost certainly rich. Uh, he's unfailingly kind. The narrator describes him as worthy, and he's also single somehow. He's, he's all of those things. So he's just like the main, the main person in one of those Jane Austen uh, books. Jane Austen didn't invent this guy. This guy is Boaz. True story. 
I really, really, really wanted Isaiah's middle name to be Boaz. Honestly, I wanted his name to be Boaz, and Emily vetoed that. His name's Samuel. Uh, but she, she vetoed it, and uh, men, we all know that we have to pick our battles carefully. And since she was the one giving birth, I decided that I'd let her have that one. Uh, and uh, so it's Samuel, and, uh, but I still love the name Boaz very much. And you'll see why as we go uh, through this here. So... Uh, but, but, but before this point, all we had was our, our other characters. But Boaz comes in, and you'll see that the narrator gives us uh, a, little, a little detail here. Boaz is not just rich and single. Uh, he's also from the same clan as Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now, that means nothing to us. To us, that's really like, okay, great, he's got a family lineage. That means nothing to us. But it's a very big deal to Naomi and Ruth, and for their chance of survival. It is a very big deal because they are all of the same clan. Boaz now has some measure of responsibility to take care of these women. Not drastically, not in the sense that that all responsibility falls to him, just in the sense that family takes care of family. And so if, 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 if Boaz is of Elimelech's family, then, then maybe he's somebody they can lean on to to help out a little bit, kind of like a, a distant cousin that you're like, oh, maybe, maybe this person will help us out. So the fact that, that Boaz is from the same clan will prompt Ruth and Naomi to lean on him for that kindness. And it will take on a much greater significance later on in our story. But for now, that's all the narrator gives us. That's, that's the only uh, kind of like little detail that we find out about him. So let's just keep going here in verse 2. So Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, they've not met Boaz at this point. The narrator just introduced us to him. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come upon to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Naomi and Ruth now have managed to find uh, some sort of house to live in. They've managed to find some sort of housing, uh, but that's really all that they have uh, at this point. They've got a house, they've got no furniture, they've got uh, empty cupboards, there's, there's no baking going on, there's nothing happening in this house. They are without anything. And so Ruth says, let me go out and find some work. At least as much work as a woman could do during that time. She's not, she's not going to be able to go to Walmart and get a part-time job. She's not going to be able to, to head to McDonald's and, and, and get a job to get started. She can't do that. Those opportunities are not on the table for her. There's no way that she can get employed. But instead, what can happen here is essentially the God-ordained welfare system for the Israelite people. And so when she talks about gleaning from the field, this is, this is written out in Deuteronomy. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy What was supposed to happen is that as farmers would come and they would harvest their field, they would intentionally leave behind some of the the wheat and the barley that they had had cut down. They would leave behind some of it. They, They were specifically told, don't be super diligent with this, leave some behind. And on top of that, they were supposed to basically leave the edges of the field untouched. So like 90, 95% of the field they were, to, they were to harvest, but the small little portion they were to leave untouched. 
And what would happen then is those that were poor, those that couldn't work, those that for whatever reason they didn't have anything, they would come and they would come to the edges of the field and they would glean from the edges of the field. They would take just the little bit that was left over, that little 10%, that little 5%. They would take what was left over and that would be how society would uh, take care of the least of these, those that, that don't have anything. And that was the whole design and that's the way that this was all set up. And so so Ruth knows that this is how this works. She's, she's had it explained to her, I assume, by Naomi. And she says, Naomi, you stay here. You're older. Let me go out and see what I can find. Let me go out and see if I can't find this. And when she goes out, she begins to, to go along to these, these different spots. And she go, begins to, 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 to go from field to field to f- see if she can find anyone Uh, that was following this. But here's the thing, though. That was the rules that were given for the people of Israel. This was the the rules that God had given for God's people, how God's people would take care of the lesser of God's people. But let's remember when this is happening. This is during the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, everyone doing their own thing. So there's no guarantee that Ruth is going to find, go out there and find anyone that even acknowledges Yahweh, yet alone anyone who's practicing the law and the rules as were laid out, especially these kind of lesser rules. It's one thing if it's the big, the big laws or the big things, but these are kind of the lesser ones. These are the easy ones that are, that are the, the ones that are easy to kind of fudge on, the ones that it's easy to be like, eh, we'll, we'll let that one slide. So there's no guarantee that Ruth is going to find anyone that's actually doing this. No doubt many had foregone this old practice to maximize their profits. I mean, think about it. If you were to take over a, a, a farm like this and, and, and the farm was making this much money and this much was happening and you were given the charge, I want you to raise our profits by 10% and then you look out there and you say, well, there's 10% of our crop that's not even being harvested. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to harvest the crop. And so they, they show up, or Ruth shows up and, and no doubt that many have, have, have foregone this kind of societal welfare system. Ruth is going and she's just hoping to find something. And then in verse 3, we, we read one of uh, my favorite phrases that happens in this book, that she happened onto the field of Boaz. She just so happened to walk onto this field. What a coincidence. The narrator's kind of given us a, a bit of a wink and a nod here. Tongue firmly in cheek. She just so happened to walk up on this one guy's field, this man. So let's see what happens next in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So boom, immediately. He shows up. He hops out of his, his, his big, nice truck. He's the guy in charge. Uh, and he's clearly an, an, a nice guy. I mean, he's everything that you want the guy to be. He's the, this is the nice, go, nice guy intro part of the, the series where he shows up. Uh, he's, got, he, he, he's got his boots on. He's got his nice pressed shirt. He comes over to the foreman of the guys and he immediately gives them this, 
this blessing. So he's, he's out dressed nice, and he comes over to the guys in their, their overalls and in their, their dirty clothes, and, and, uh, and he comes over to them, and he kind of gives them this priestly blessing. The Lord be with you. No, no, he's not putting on any airs. He's not talking down to anybody. He's not yelling at anybody. He's not getting on to anybody. He's a good boss. He's a good man. Delivering this priestly blessing, referring to Yahweh. He is, he, he, he is everything that, that Israel looks like it has lost during this time. But not in Boaz. Israel might have forgotten God during this time, but Boaz hasn't. Boaz is a good dude. Verse 5. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? It's interesting how he asks that question. It's not who is she, but who does she belong to? This would have been the assumption of, of, uh, of every, every woman in that culture that, that they didn't have independent agency, but instead they belonged to someone. He says, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came... And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz comes out, he looks out in the field, and he says, Who's this? I've never seen her before. What is she doing out there? The foreman kind of relays the latest gossip, says, This is the one you've heard about her. You heard about Naomi, right? She's back in town. This is her daughter-in-law. But then he only has good things to say about her. She's out here working hard. She's come and she asks for permission. She didn't just come and take. She asked for permission to join in here. And then once she got out here, she's worked her tail off. She's working hard. She's barely even taking a short break. She's working harder than the rest of the crew. Ruth has come out here and she's made a good name for herself that she's, she's, she's working hard. She's working her tail off. She's sweating. She's dirty. She's probably exhausted because she's not been eating anything. And she's out there doing some very hard work. But Boaz notices her, and immediately he moves to take care of her. Immediately his response is, is, is an admirable one. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. So you don't need to go anywhere else to find what you need. You stay right here. I will take care of you. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he goes to her and he says, listen, I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to go to any other field. It's dangerous for you to go to another field. It's dangerous for you to be out here at all. But I've, I've, I've gone to every one of my men and I've said, I'll break their legs if they touch you. Don't worry about it. They're going to be, uh, they're going to be fine. They're going to leave you alone. Go with the other women. Don't be out here by yourself. Go in groups. Go with the other women and, and, and move up. Don't just, don't just fall back and take the leftover. Come back up and reap right alongside them. So he goes out of his way to take care of her. He makes sure that everybody knows that she's off limits. Treat her like a lady. If you read the last few chapters of Judges, you know how important it is that Boaz has taken this step. Because you see, she would have been, uh, as a single woman in the field, in a very, very vulnerable position. She could have been assaulted and no one would have known. And frankly, no one 
would have cared. Boaz goes out of his way, this extraordinary gesture, and he does so fully unprovoked. Because right now, he's, he's not trying, this is not like some subtle, he's making a move on or anything. This is just Boaz saying, I need to take care of you. Because you're in a very, very dangerous position. He would have been more than uh, sufficiently covering what the law requires out of him if he had just let her hang out on the edges of the field and pick up the leftovers. But he wants to make, make sure that she is cared for. And let's remember this too. This is a huge part of this. She is not a Jew. She is a Moabite. In fact, in chapter 1, it, it says that her name, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, it says it so much that it's almost like it's her last name. I mean, they go, it, the, the narrator goes out of the way to highlight that she is not one of them. She is clearly an outsider, a foreigner, and many would have assumed not even worthy of that kind of care. He would have been justified to do nothing. There's nothing that provokes Boaz to do this outside of his own goodness to care for her. Boaz would have none of this just kind of dismissing her kind of thing. And then we have this beautiful exchange that happens between Ruth and Boaz when they, when they talk to each other here in verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There is so much beauty packed into that little paragraph there, into those words. And there are hints of the gospel all over that small little exchange. Ruth is completely blown away by Boaz's kindness. She knows that anything she received from him would be a blessing. Anything that she was, she would receive from, from him as a foreigner would have been a blessing. She deserved nothing. There's nothing in who she is. There's nothing in her status. There's nothing in her that demands Boaz offer her anything. So if he gave her a single stalk of grain, she would have been, uh, it, it would have been more than he was required to give her. No one owes her anything. Yes, she's connected by marriage to the, the Jewish people, but her husband is dead. Her mother-in-law is the one that had abandoned the people, her people years ago. It's bold for her to even show up and ask for a handout, let alone receive this, kind of, this, this level of kindness from a total stranger. I can't overstate here how lowly Ruth's position is in this moment. One commentator says that this might be the lowliest person we meet in all of Scripture. That's a pretty strong statement. Which begs the question, why is this book called the book of Ruth? Why is this book called the book of Ruth? 
Why do we have a, 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 a book in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures named after a Moabitess woman who, by all accounts, is, 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 is a, a foreigner who deserves nothing from God? Why don't we have the book of Boaz? Why don't we have this book here, the book of Boaz? And I'm going to go ahead and give you some spoilers. Boaz is full on the hero of the story. He never lets us down, not once. Boaz is the hero of the story. He's the one that is the Christ-like figure that saves the day. He's good. He's worthy. He's everything we should want to be as men. Ruth is a foreigner and nothing that any Israelite would ever want to be. So why the book of Ruth? Why not the book of Boaz? There's a few answers to this one. I think there's a lot that we could probably draw from this. One, I think, is because God constantly does things in ways that surprise us. It's all over Scripture. Time and time again, God uses people, uses ways, uses circumstances, uses the the things you would least expect in order to accomplish His will. It's almost as if He delights in doing things in a way that you would not expect. But I think verse 10 and verse 12 kind of give us a clue too. Ruth is shocked by Boaz's kindness which leads her to the self-aware admission of how unworthy she is to receive it, specifically because she is a foreigner. As a non-Jew, she has no right to expect that Yahweh would bless her in any way, and yet he does. And then Boaz's response is so full of understanding and compassion. Let's read this again, verse 11 and 12. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's taken time to learn her story. Not for the purpose of knowing the latest gossip in town. He's taken time to learn her story, to understand her struggles to listen to her heart, to feel her pain, to see her loneliness in a land uh, that is not her home and a people that are not her people. Men, if you haven't figured this out already, this is what biblical manhood looks like. Single guys, high school guys, study Boaz. See what it is that he does. It's helpful if you can be rich. But even if you can't be rich, even if that doesn't happen... Follow what he does here. He takes interest in Ruth and he goes to Ruth and, he's, and he, he cares for her, not because of what he can take from her. Notice how she bows in front of him and basically says, what have I done to receive this favor? In that moment, she is in a doubly vulnerable position. He could have demanded all kinds of things out of her. Instead, he says, I know what you've done. I know what you've been through. I know how you're suffering. He takes time to know her and to care about her. And once he knows more about her and he, and he, and he seeks to, to care for her, his goal is not to take from her, but to give to her. He honors her. You say, okay, okay, I get it. Boaz is great. But but why the book of Ruth? This only underscores the point here. Why not the the book of Boaz? Well, before we get too far, let's make it clear. Ruth is pretty great too. 
Ruth is pretty great too. We'll see more about that in a couple of weeks. So if you're like, hey, why are you not going to like pump up Ruth? She's pretty good. Just mm, give it a couple of weeks. We'll get there trying to hold some of that for whenever we get to, to chapter three. But I, I think the, the bigger picture here uh, that we have to remember is the book of Ruth is ultimately not about Ruth and it's not about Boaz. It's not about Elimelech. It's not about Naomi. It's not about any of them. It is about God. And so I think the answer in verse 12 uh, is found in verse 12 that tells us why this is the book of Ruth. Boaz's prayer is that she would receive the blessing she has come for. The blessing based on her faith. Her faith has driven her to, to, to leave her people and her land. Her faith has driven her to care for her mother-in-law. To show up on these fields in spite of all that it might cost her. In, in, in spite of all the, 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 the fear that would have come with it. In spite of all the danger that would have been a part of it. In spite of all the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears. In spite of all that, Ruth has acted in faith and he, she has shown up. And Boaz says, be blessed because you have come and sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. That, in the nutshell, is the gospel. A woman that deserves nothing, acting in faith, seeking refuge in the wings of God. This is what Israel was supposed to be to all the other nations all along. You see all the tragedy of the book of Judges. Part of the tragedy is not just the suffering of the people of Israel. Part of the tragedy is looking at what the people of Israel were supposed to be and never were. This is how it was supposed to work. Here in miniature, we see what in, in large scale should have happened. Israel should have been a light to the nations that shows the goodness, the greatness, and the compassion of their God. Israel should have been the place that welcomes the outsider in with their confession of faith in Yahweh. Israel should have been a place that puts Yahweh on display and says, this is who our God is. A God of wrath, yes. A God of vengeance, yes. A God of justice, absolutely. So you should fear him. But also a God of graciousness, a God of goodness, a God of love and mercy that welcomes in the outsider and the foreigner, that welcomes in the one who does not deserve it. That is who our God is. That's what Israel should have done. And while Israel may have failed, Boaz is not. And while Israel may have failed, Ruth has not. Ruth's faith is in this God. And she has sought refuge under his wings. Not refuge in Boaz, not refuge in uh, uh, th this people, not refuge in a welfare system, not refuge in her mother-in-law. Refuge under the wings of God. Friends, this is why this is the book of Ruth. Because it is the essence of what our faith should look like. A humble, unworthy outsider. A sinner. That's you and me. Acting on a faith that has been gifted to us to seek refuge in a God that should banish us. But instead, he says, welcome home. Not only does he say, welcome home and open the door, it gets better with, with shades of the, the prodigal son coming home. We'll read verse 14 here. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, 
Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed uh, passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until, until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an, an ephah, of, ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. It is a beautiful picture. She is fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. She is, she is given the roasted grain. She is given the wine to drink. And she comes and she is not the outsider that's sitting out and just kind of looking on and saying, I wish I could have some of that, but I'll get my fill whenever I go home. I've got a good, a good fill here. I've, I've gathered quite a bit. I'll get my fill then. But Boaz says, no, I'll have none of that. You come and eat with us. You come dine with us. You come have a meal with us. And don't just eat a little bit. Eat until you're full. And don't just eat until you're full. Eat until, until, until you can't have anything else. And it is, it is running over the blessing that you have been given. She is fully satisfied and has food left over. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's just like when the prodigal son comes home and the father kills the fatted calf because his son has come back to the place where he belongs. Is he worthy of the celebration? Absolutely not. But the father kills the calf anyway and celebrates, much to the chagrin of the older brother. But he kills the fatted calf and he celebrates. Again, a picture of our salvation. Whenever, uh, whenever Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000, the story that we have there, the picture that we have there is that, that he, he takes a little bit. He takes this small little uh, loaves and fishes from uh, the little boy and then he breaks it and gives it away and he breaks it and he gives it away and he breaks it and gives it away and he breaks it and he gives it away. And then when everybody is satisfied, when everybody is full, he keeps breaking it and giving it away. And if you'll remember, what happens at the end of that story? There's 12 baskets left over of extra food that Jesus has provided for everyone. Because he doesn't just provide what we need, he provides more than we could ever ask for or dream of. That's exactly what happens here with Boaz. He says, here, you come and eat. Eat until you're full. Eat until you're satisfied. And then once you're full and you're satisfied, there's still more on the table for you. And then go out and gather the, 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 the barley so that you can take some home. Gather the, 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 the reaping there so that you can take some home. And, and he gives instructions to the, the reapers that are there with her. Like, hey, just leave her some. Just like, just, I, I know you worked and you cut it down, but give her a little bit of whatever you cut down for her. Let her get up there in the front of the line. No longer does she sit in the back of the line. No longer is she the least of these. She's up in the front of the line with you. Give her more and more and more because she has something that she needs to give away. She has someone else that she needs to care for. So welcome her to be a part of the team. Provide for her, care for her, and then send her away full. Friends, that's our salvation. A foreigner, deserving of nothing, 
A foreigner showing up just hoping that someone might have mercy on us. And God not only shows mercy and compassion and says, here's the morsel. God says, eat and be full. This is what God does for us. Sinners. Enemies of God. And he breaks it and gives it away. 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 And we eat our full. What a beautiful picture is there. Overflowing with God's goodness. Overflowing with grace. I wonder how many of you know God's goodness like that. Or I wonder how many of you are, are, are trying to, uh, to, to go out into the field and show God how hard you can work to cut down just a few more, a few more stalks, to make a few more bundles. Say, God, look at me. Look how good I am at doing this. And you get this meager supply and you say, look, I'm so proud of how I've done. Won't you just, won't you just look at me and notice me? And you have no sense, no idea of what God has done for you. The overwhelming supply of grace and goodness that he has for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You simply do the same as what Ruth has done, which is you put your faith in God and you hide yourself under the shadow of his wings. And the goodness and the grace is there for you. And just a little more here to close out our scene, which will kind of set us up for what is to come. And again, whoever wrote this story, man, they are good. They are a good storyteller. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? So she shows back up to their house. She walks back in. And when she walks back in, she's got this sack of barley over her shoulder. This is probably about the size of like the big dog food bags, like 40, 50 pounds. She was expecting like a little pouch of grain, like just a little bit. She's expecting like tops, like one of the plastic bags that you get at Walmart, right? And then, then, then Ruth walks in tired just from carrying the thing all the way down the road, right? She walks in, throws it on the table, and Naomi's like, oh, good day, I guess. I guess you found a good field. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I worked, she had worked... This, man, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And you almost, in this moment, like you can hear, like you can just see it. I can just see the picture in my head. They're standing there in the kitchen. Naomi's like standing over at the counter looking at the, the grain there. And then Ruth says, I, I found this guy. I don't, I've ne- never seen him before. I don't know who he is. He's a good looking guy. I think he's pretty rich. Uh, and his name, his name is, is Boaz. And you can just almost see Naomi like, Wait, what? Did you say Boaz? And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Very big detail there, even though it means nothing to us right now. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by the young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Do you see like the undertones that continue all throughout this book, how dangerous things are for Ruth, how much she is an outsider, how, how bad things could go for her 
like in a moment. Like it just kind of keeps coming up. This is not like a, like, like a, a paranoia. This is a very real problem that, that Ruth could be facing. And so in verse 23, it says, And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Close scene, fade, and be ready for the next in our series. So Naomi welcomes her back home. And remember, there's no texting. There's no Facebook updates. You can just imagine that Naomi has been pacing the floor all day long, frankly wondering if she may never even see her daughter-in-law again. She knows that she has to send her out. If they don't, they'll have no food. So there's not really anything else they can do. And, and, and Naomi's too old to do the work. And, and, and she, she had to be terrified to send Ruth out there. She, Ruth knew no one. She looks different. She probably doesn't talk the same. She certainly doesn't have all the same traditions. She had to be terrified. And then whenever she comes back in and drops that sack of grain on the table, Naomi is shocked. She's so surprised. And then whenever the name of Boaz comes up, Naomi is like, oh, this is like doubly good. It was good enough that you brought all this food home, but, but this guy Boaz, that is really good news. I don't know how you've done this, Ruth. I don't know what it is, how you, how you picked this farm, how you picked this field. I don't know how you ended up there, but you have made a good choice. It just so happens that you've done this, Ruth. What a coincidence that you ended up in Boaz's field. What a coincidence that this has happened. So we'll learn a little bit here whenever we, we keep on going about what's the big deal about him being a redeemer? What's the big deal about that? What does that even mean? It means nothing for us in our culture, but it meant everything for them in their culture. So we'll hold off to that for, for next week. But right now, for now, let's just rejoice in a God that loves to welcome the outsider. Let's learn from the examples of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, a woman who's not afraid to go out and to work hard, to put her life on the line in order to serve her mother-in-law, in order to, to care for someone else, who's not afraid to put her faith in action in a place where even at that moment it would have been dangerous for her to do so. Let's celebrate Ruth. Let's celebrate Boaz, the man who shows grace and mercy Whenever all around him seem to be faithless, he is the one showing Israel what it looks like when God does exactly what God designed for Israel to do. When he is the one that blesses and that gives. Let's celebrate that and let's celebrate a God who welcomes in the outsider, the foreigner that deserves nothing. A God that loves to show grace and mercy even to those who are not worthy of it even to those who can claim no right to it. Let us consider how we, have, how we ourselves have acted on our faith like Ruth, where we have placed our trust in that God. Ruth answers the age-old question, which is it? God's sovereignty or human responsibility? You tell me, you've read through chapter 2, who did this? Did Ruth do this? Did Boaz do this? Or did God do this? Well, the answer is yes. They all did this. And this is how it works. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for us to avoid responsibility or to take a step back and to say, God's going to take care of this. I'm just going to say, hands off. God is fully sovereign. He is fully in control. There are no coincidences. She didn't just happen on that field. 
She didn't just happen to show up there. But make no mistake about it, she's the one that took the risk and she's the one that made the walk and she's the one that was out there sweating her tail off, picking up all of this grain. There are no coincidences. But since God is sovereign, that should, that should cause us to act in faith and to trust Him. His sovereignty doesn't negate our action, it prompts our action. Do you see how those work together? Our trust in Him leads us to do daring, difficult, hard work because we believe that He is worthy of that trust. Rightly understood, God's sovereignty is the basis for our action, not an excuse for inaction. So church, what is, what is it that God is calling you to act on this morning? What part of God's character can you lean into this morning and say, God, I'm going to do this because I trust that you are this way. I'm going to do this because I trust that you are in control. I'm going to do this because I trust that this is the type of God that you are. I'm going to do this thing that is hard. I'm going to do this thing that I don't have answers for. I'm going to do this thing that doesn't seem to make sense because, God, I trust in this part of who you are. That's what Ruth did. So I'm going to pray here in just a second. We're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to lead us in that time of prayer. And I'm going to kind of walk you through a little bit of those questions and have you offer something up to God and say, this is who I want to be, and this is who we are. So let's pray. Father, this morning as we learn this story and as we, we look at the story of, of Ruth and Boaz, Remind us that this is not just a story of, of Ruth and Boaz. That this is a story of you, of your goodness, of how you work. It's a picture of your salvation for us. A salvation that we fully confess we are not worthy of. We are fully outsiders. We claim no, we, we bring no claim to you to say that you owe us anything. For we have brought nothing to you that you should repay us. We simply come to you and say, God, we desire to hide under the refuge of your wings. And Father, we trust that because of who you are, you will welcome us home. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.